Welcome back. This week, I talk with Dennis Gillen. Dennis's story really starts with his family and his brothers. 11 years apart, Dennis lost both of his brothers to suicide. He handled both of them differently. His older brother, he leaned on substances and alcohol. And his younger brother, he ended up finding sobriety and therapy. And Dennis did not talk about his brothers for a very long time. He did work behind the scenes um, for suicide prevention. Um, but all of a sudden in 2010, Dennis started to talk about his brothers and what it did to him and the effect it had on him. And since then, he has found his mission in life um, to work with suicide prevention and tell his story. And that is the story we talk about here today. Um, before we get into the episode, we got to talk about Engineered Sleep. Engineered Sleep has been an amazing partner of mine. And as I say, I could not trust a company better than Engineered Sleep for you to go to them to find the best mattress possible for you. And people might think like, oh, it's just a, like mattresses. Like how good can a mattress get? The team at Engineered Sleep and their product is incredible. And sleep is so important for our daily lives. It makes no sense if you are sleeping on a mattress that you believe could be better. And if you use promo code LIVE15, you'll get 15% off your order. Um, go visit them at their showroom in Greenville, South Carolina, or go to their website, engineersleep.com. Use promo code LIVE15, or just give them a call. Make sure to mention the podcast. Use promo code LIVE15. You'll get 15% off your order. But most importantly, you're going to have an incredible team behind you. You're going to have a great product. You're going to start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis. Um, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dennis Gillen. If you enjoyed it as much as I know I did, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share it with your friends and family. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Dennis Gillen. Dennis, man, thank you so much for joining me. We are connected through a good friend, Kip. But uh, how was your Labor Day weekend? It was very good. I was, um, I'm was. i part of the sandwich generation. I spent it. <laughs> now, you say a prayer for me. I spent the weekend showing my mom, who's 87, how to use a smart TV. Wow. Streaming. She was on Netflix. How'd it go? <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> If I didn't drink this weekend, I'll never drink. That's right. It was rough. I said, Mom, you, now you have two remotes. And that, that about blew her mind, but she did well. What? Um. So your mom is now in Wilmington? Yes. Where did y'all grow up? I grew up in New York. Okay. Um, Upstate New York? New York City? New York City. I was born in Brooklyn, and my parents uh, were all from Brooklyn, uh, both of them. And all four of my grandparents came from Ireland. So wow. they, they settled in Brooklyn. Yeah. So second generation. And my dad... Everybody moved out to like Long Island and my dad bucked the trend. He went upstate. He used to like to go skiing. So we went up to like up the Hudson River a little bit to a, a town called Valley Cottage, New York, which is maybe 20, 30 miles north of the George Washington Bridge. It's right there. Um, but it's probably on the wrong side of the river because we don't have a good train system. <laughs> All the rich people lived in Westchester. Sure. The working stiffs lived where I live. <laughs> I spent some time in New York and I still marvel how the train systems work. But... You being in New York, was this in the 70s, mid-70s, growing up in Brooklyn? What was that like? So I was born in 1963. I'm an old fart. Um, what am I? How does that make me? Oh, I'm going to be 59 this year. Really? Yeah, but I look... Hey, 50, you don't look it, I look man. 57. Thank you. Uh, 
you know, 58 now, 59 in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I was born in Brooklyn. I was one of five kids. I'm number three. I'm in the middle. My parents had like a two bedroom apartment. So when I show up, they're like, uh oh. So up to the suburbs they go, mm-hmm. you know. So they moved out. So we moved out when I was five months. So I lived in suburbia. So we're, we're taping this in Greenville, South Carolina. Any suburban city will do. It's, you know, America, you know, it just, the city was miles away in my life when I was a kid. We played sports, run around, woods in the backyard. It was just in the middle of nowhere. Sure. But now it's a suburb of New York City. <laughs> and y'all had, so it was you, your mom, your dad, and five, or four siblings? Five. Five, five of siblings. us. Sheila, Mark, me, Dennis in the middle, Janice and Matthew. Got it. What made you go to school at West Virginia? That's an interesting story. My dad was in the paper industry. He worked for Dunder Mifflin. No, he was in the paper, <laughs> he was in the paper business. And he knew this guy, a couple of brothers that went to West Virginia. And he goes, Dennis, it's cheaper. Economically. <laughs> You're the first one to go. You're sure. the first one to go. It's, help us out here. And we took a road trip out there. And you know what? I'm sort of a country guy. I didn't like the city, even mm-hmm. though I grew up near it. I didn't like it. You yeah. know, when we had to go visit in-laws and stuff and, and back in Brooklyn, I hated it. Uh, the concrete jungle. So I looked around and his suggestion was, could you go here? I said, I can go here. Yeah. It'll work work out. Very cool. Were you and your siblings close growing up? Were y'all like doing a lot of things together? What was that dynamic like? Well, we fought like siblings. I, you know, (laughs) I, me and my brother were like 16 months apart and my sister was 16 months behind. We we just, we got along and it was fun because there's always something to do, but I was always, and I'm still am hyper. I couldn't stay in the house. So the minute the sun came up, I was out the door. What were you doing? Looking for a game, looking for something, riding my bike, looking for a baseball game, looking for a football <laughs> game, looking for someone to play with. Now, we didn't have computers or anything, so everything was outside or was outside exploring in the woods. My brother and I, we were, Mark, the older one, we were very different. He was more of a gadget guy. He could fix stuff. People would bring like clocks to our house. Mark sure. would fix it. Uh, I was more the jock, you know, got to go. See <laughs> I'll see you at lunchtime and then I'll see you at dinner. And that was it. So we, we did a lot of stuff together, but we also were very different, like siblings are. Yeah, sure. I mean, I know me and my me and my sister, we were, we've gotten a lot closer in our later years, but uh, we're four years apart and we had plenty of interesting stories of us button heads growing up. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Mark as a kid and like through his progression, because we're going to get to your junior year at West Virginia in a second. But what was Mark like as a kid? He was 16 months older than you. Um, You know, you said he was into gadgets. Like, did you, you know, was he, what was he like? He was, I'd say he was more of an introvert, Mark. He, um, early on in life, he, he had to wear glasses. So he got teased about that. If you're a kid, not want to like wear glasses. Second and third grade, you're wearing glasses. Like, ah, oh, dang. And he was a little heavier than he should have been, you know. But who am I? Mm-hmm. Jack Lane, you know. It just, he was like pudgy, glasses. And he tried a couple things in sports. Didn't work out. Just wasn't his thing. What his thing was, was fixing stuff. And I remember he installed, at the time, it was called Citizen Band Radio, CB Radio. He put one on his bike Wow! and he, and he ran it off a generator for the headlight. You know, the thing that yeah. runs against the tire. He figured out that power system could power the CB. So he took the headlight off and connected the wires and set it up. So when he was riding his bike, he could talk on the CB, which we all were like, what? That is absurd. Who thinks of that? <laughs> so if you ever look at the early pictures like Microsoft, you know, those, all those 
geeked out dudes that are now multi-billionaires. <laughs> he would have fit right in there. Nice. That's his, that's his tribe. But I think he was having trouble finding his tribe. Sure. Did you, so when you probably didn't know at the time, but your mission today goes back to this day when you were a junior at West Virginia and you get a call from, I think it's your sister. Talk us through that time, the call, and then the days following. All right. The Gillen family, as I said, at this point was fully staffed and fully staffed is five of us. I'm at school uh, eight hours away from home. And I get a phone call from Janice. And Janice is my younger sister. And um, she I could barely make out what she's saying. And all I heard was, Dennis, you need to come home. Mm-hmm. And this is a Wednesday. And I'm like, I'm fine right where I am. And I remember I had two tests the next day. She goes, no, you need to get home. Mark died in a car accident. That part I got. I'm like, crap. Holy. So <clears throat> either way, Mark's, Mark's gone. We'll get into how he died soon. But I'm like, wow. I have to get home. Uh, I'm freaking out a little bit. And sure. it, it was later on that day, I, I accidentally learned from another friend who I called. He was at the University of Delaware. And I called him up and I said, oh, my brother died. And I was crying. He was my good buddy. And he goes, I know I heard he died by suicide or he asphyxiated. I'm like, what? I was like, what? Say that again? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, they didn't tell me that. They didn't know what to tell me, yeah. Sam. They just said, get your butt home. Yeah. So uh, I called back to my house and I was like, now I'm all mad. Like, how did he die? Like, I'm all indignant. I'm kind of being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Like, how did he die? How did he die? And all I remember my dad saying, I was through tears. He's like, Dennis, just get home. Like, we'll explain it later. And uh, then I knew. Yeah. Then I knew what my friend said was, was correct. Was there... How was the family reacting to his death at this time? Now, this is all blur because if you lost, you talked to a lot of people who've gone mm-hmm. through some major stuff on this podcast, you go into like blur mode, survival mode. I remember going home, I, I flew into Newark Airport the next day. My sister was there with her husband and my family, my little brother Matt and Janice were there. I just come off the plane, we just start crying. This is back in the days before the TSA, you can meet the person at the gate. So the minute I come yeah, off the plane, they're there. Wow tears get in the car drive home i don't know what to expect my brother uh, died in the car in the driveway and the car was still there mm-hmm. and it had like a tarp over it I'm like oh crap yeah so i gotta walk by that i walk in the house i see my mom i expected that i said where's dad we're all crying and i you know as a kid you never saw your dad cry Mm-mm. especially like that generation of, of uh. men so he comes out of the bedroom where he was laying down because he probably didn't sleep the entire night. He comes out of the bedroom and he's crying. And I'm like, damn, this is serious. Mm-hmm. This is, that's what it really hit me hard when I saw my dad crying. This is two dudes, you know, that's the guy you looked up to, the rock. Mm-hmm. And he's crying. I'm like, oh man, this is bad. Yeah. Was there anything in the days leading up to Mark's death like maybe I'll see now that could have been warning signs or like things that were going on in his life, you know, now reflecting on it that could have seen some warning signs coming. What have, could have, should have. It's a suicide comes with its own set of baggage. You know, it's like the guilt and you look back and hindsight is twenty twenty. You could see everything. Uh, but there were signs. Mark had run away at one time, you know, he was, mm-hmm. wasn't happy in the home situation. He was going to get away. Uh, growing up, Irish Catholic, there was a lot of alcohol. 
and it's part of our culture. And that's a depressant as yeah, well. Yeah, and it's a awful, uh, you know, well, they say it's a good antidepressant, but it has side effects, you know, really bad ones. Like everybody hates you. Um, it just, so he was doing a lot of that, drinking. He experimented with some drugs. I, people would come up to me afterwards at, at the funeral and tell me stories about my brother. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I didn't know that was going on. Yeah, you know? sure. And my, my guy came up to goes, I remember I, I was, I tripped with your brother. You know, they took acid. I'm like, well, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he was 16 months older than you. Correct. So he was 20 around, around 20. Yeah. Uh, let's do the math right now. He was born in 62 and 83. So he's 21. Yeah. How did you mention alcohol? And I had a guy on the podcast, Joseph Green. He, he had something that has stuck with me forever, but it's like, you think alcohol is a solution to a problem, but nobody tells you that alcohol comes with major, bigger problems. How did you handle his death at that time? Like, what did you end up? Good segue with alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> you teed that one up pretty good. I went back to school. This is what I did. I went home for the funeral. Thursday, I get there. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we bury Mark. Uh, Sunday, Monday, I had a kind of like a weird day. I took, I went back to my old girlfriend and said, come with me, I'm going back to college. She was really nice. So her and her family took her back to Connecticut. I, I just got out of the house and took a ride. Mm-hmm. And I went back there. I uh, came back with their parents, and uh, they were really super supportive. Uh, got dropped off, and then Tuesday I went back to school. I was like, all right, that's over. Um, and then I went back to school, and I started drinking heavily. Uh, the drinking age was 18 at the time. I was already 18. I was 20 when Mark died, so I was two years beyond that. And it's funny with this, the alcohol age limit – if it's, the drinking age is 18, you start drinking when you're 14. Yeah. If the drinking age is 21, you start drinking when you're 17. Yep. It's just the way it works. Uh, and I, I just started going hard. I was masking the pain. If you look back, if you're going to psychoanalyze Dennis, here's a guy who just lost his brother to suicide. He goes to school eight hours away. He's not at ground zero where his mm-hmm. parents are, nor did I want to be there. Um, so I just started, you know, self-medicating hard. And I would get flat out shit-faced. It wasn't good. It wasn't pretty. Yeah. Uh, blackout drunk. Um, I wasn't good at it. Drinking, not good. I don't know my metabolism, whatever. I was a light, <laughs> lightweight, as they say in the business. But I tried. It wasn't for lack yeah. of effort. During the, you know, I guess in the years following Mark's death, you graduate. You, you know, get going to the business world. Like, what is your professional life at, at that time? Are you married? You know, what's going on then? Yeah, I, uh, I, I leave... WVU, I uh, graduated in four and a half years. I took a summer session, which I'm pretty proud of. I'm like, damn, I got mm-hmm. to do all that because my brother died my junior year. So four years, eight weeks later, I'm out. <clears throat> I got a job in New Jersey at the time. Uh, that didn't work out. And I got a really good job. This is where things started hitting you know, my stride. I got a job with Merck Pharmaceuticals. I was a pharmaceutical rep. That's yeah. like a pinnacle. I think I out-punted my coverage on that one. I'm like, wow, I got the job. You know, yeah. They hired me. I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> have you seen my grade point average? It looks like <laughs> it looks like my blood alcohol level. You know, they're on a collision course. They're about the same number. Um, so I, I got that job and I moved to Pennsylvania, which is good for me because it's rural and it's out of away from New York mm-hmm. where I'm running from my problems. My brother's buried up there. And I get, I meet a woman and we get married and got the house and living in Carlisle and I'm in a pretty good groove. Yeah. What, <clears throat> fast forward probably five, six more years, I think it's 94, you get another call from Janice. Yeah. 83 to 94. Yep. What, what, um, so this time it was Matthew. Oh, 
effing Matt, the younger brother. He, he'd been to my house in Carlisle a couple times, Sam. We were drinking heavily. We never talked about Mark. We would drink <laughs> together. Yeah. And, yeah, he lived in Richmond, Virginia. I helped him get him an apartment down there. My dad asked me, hey, go go help Matt get an apartment. Because I lived in a bunch of apartments. And my dad, sure. so I said, all right, I'll go down there. I went down there, helped him get an apartment. He was working for my father. <clears throat> and this day, you, you remember these days, like they're, they're etched into you know, stone in your mind. It was a Monday. And it was like right after work, like right around 5.05, right around there. I just got home and my sister Janice calls again and poor Janice, bear her bad news twice. Mm -hmm. She's crying and says, Matt, Matt died. And um, Matt had a, a firearm and seven, you know, what is it? 51% of all completed suicides with a firearm and he was drinking. Mm -hmm. and that's an awful combination. And I thank God I never had a firearm. I had a rifle in my house for a while. The minute Matt died, I got rid of that thing. Yeah. Um, uh, it was awful. And that Monday I go back, and, and here I go. I'm going back to New York. I'm like, I already did this. Yeah. I remember hugging a guy at the funeral. I said, I told him that. I said, I already did this. Like, I already did this. Like, I thought maybe just check the box. One suicide, mm -hmm. you know, next tragedy. I did it. And it was twice. And God, I got hammered the night before Matt. We buried Matt at my parents' house. I remember right, right up in the fridge and just started draining every beer they had and um, went to the funeral hungover. And every time I cry, and I still cry, I'm a man, and you know, I'm comfortable with my emotions. But when I do cry, I, have, I, got, I get a headache. I just do. And usually if I cry, I have to lay down afterwards because I get a headache. Mm -hmm. And crying makes me tired. Yeah. It's also necessary. It's a lot of emotions. It's a lot of emotions. And it's just bubbled up. And so I, if I cry, I get a headache. And... I remember going to the funeral. I had the headache. Then I have a hangover. Mm -hmm. um, I'm crying my eyes out. I don't remember much of that funeral. And then I got back and we had people over the house like you do. You know, people come over. They bring casseroles and all that other stuff. And then at this point, I got to pack up the car. Like, we got to go back to Carlisle. It's like yeah. a four-hour ride. I got to get <clears> out of here. Do you know, looking back because there is a big point here where you decide to go sober in the years in between both your brothers passing do you do you think you could have been alcoholic do you think like what were you relying on those substances to affect your mood affect your feelings mask some of the depression or anything like that all right i'm not a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist i'm going to make an opinion here i think when people use substances they're running from something, mm -hmm. or they're, 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 there's a painful. They're trying to mask the pain. That's Dennis Gillen's opinion. <laughs> Write all your emails to Sam. <laughs> there's one guy, one opinion. I would. There wasn't joy in my life with the loss of Mark and whatever. So I was masking the pain. Do I think it was alcoholic? Uh, I remember one time, I opened a bottle of wine with my then wife. Uh, her name was Christine, and I opened a bottle of wine and I threw the cork in the garbage. And she's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, we're finishing it. Like, yeah. I, I never saw someone put a cork back on the bottle. <laughs> it just go, it was automatic. I'm like, not worried about it. <laughs> we're not going to see, we, unless you have a cork collection, you want to make yeah. a cool coaster. We don't need that. <laughs> and she looked at me funny, like, I'm like, that's how I roll. And, but you got to look at it, right? Like, <clears throat> you handled both deaths really in a different way. First death from Matt. You start drinking. That's Mark. First Mark. Mark. Yeah, both biblical names, Mark and Matthew. Matthew passes away. You go sober. 
you really have to feel these feelings now. You really have to like kind of handle some of these emotions. Like you're not running from the pain. You're not running from the feelings. What do you do then? Like how are you dealing with the death? I felt everything after Matt died, and the, and the sobriety piece was literally on the drive back. I'm like, I got to do something. I can't. Do, I can't live like this. Yeah. And I decided to go. You know, sober. There was a there was a, a deal made with God. I don't talk about this too often, but we were having trouble getting pregnant, conceiving mm-hmm. a child. We were going at it for about a year. Now, I'm not complaining about that year. That was a good year. <laughs> if you're a guy like, hey, every five days, yeah, yeah, five let's... days a month, you need me. Uh, the other days, you know, get the garbage out. Um, that's all I am. Um, not complaining, but we're having trouble. And I made a deal with God. And I don't recommend this, but I, I, you do what you got to do. I, I pointed my finger at the sky and I was yelling. I said, if we have a child, I'll never drink again. Now, I've already, I've already stopped drinking mm-hmm. because I don't want to go there. Uh, alcohol is a depressant and I'm depressed. We don't need to mix those two. Sure. Uh, it's awful. I, I give myself credit. I'm proud of this moment that I realized that in that moment, like, don't do it, bro. Yeah. Don't do it. Cause you don't know which Dennis is coming out. Mm-hmm. There's this happy go lucky Dennis who was a fun drunk. And then there was this a hole Dennis. And I, I wanted to keep all those guys at bay. And the best way to do that was sobriety. And then the deal with God was, you know, if we get pregnant, I'll never drink again. About a month later, we're pregnant. I'm like, I'm a man of my word. Yeah. Loyalty. I've had loyalty factor big time with me. I'm like, all right, deal's the deal. It's on. Yeah. And you know, um, side note to that, drinking like hurts people trying to get pregnant. And that could have been the reason y'all got pregnant is because you stopped drinking. There you go. You know? Um, tough question. Did you ever think about suicide yourself? You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> that is a tough question. I mean, listen, I've been in depressed moods and I have thought about suicide and luckily like never happened. Okay. Let's talk about my brothers again. No, <laughs> see me deflecting. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's a real thing and people think about it <clears throat> a lot more than people want to know people think about it. Well, I'm going to give you my answer then. You, you, you teed it up so kindly, and we're guys, and guys need to talk about it because you got to. 79% of all completed suicides are guys. Mm-hmm. Let's round that up 80%, four to five. Yep. That's awful. All right. So I mentioned my first wife, Christine. Uh, in 2015, I find out our marriage isn't what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize you're allowed to date while you're married. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a thing. <laughs> So I find her phone and I see it and it's a dude I know and F me, F me, F me. And I find myself in a car because guys go into warrior mode mm-hmm. when we get like in an argument or something. And for the ladies listening, this let your guy do this. Either we're going to say something stupid, we're going to punch a wall or we flee. Yep. And if they flee, let them go. Yeah. Because our heart rate goes through the roof. Testosterone's like... Everything wrong with a guy <laughs> that could go wrong is happening. Yeah, you got to so, get out. So you got to get out. So and, and the ladies go, oh, why well, are you running away? Like, ladies, let him go. I'll come back. So here I, I go out the door, get in my car, and I find myself in a parking lot, and I'm shaking. <clears throat> I can't believe this is going down, and I'm shaking, and it popped in my mind. Suicide. Yeah. Just die, Dennis. Just die. Easy way out. It's at the this time. is too. And then. As quickly as it popped in, I remember I'm a mental health advocate with an emphasis on suicide prevention. And I'm like, how the hell did you get in my brain? That thought, I'm like, what? I had that moment of clarity. Like, what are you doing in there? Yeah. But it also shows that I'm human. 
it got in there. So it's in there and it's bopping around my head and know it chased it out right away. My parents were alive. I'm like, I can't yep. do that to mom and dad. I have two boys, uh, Brandon and Martin. love them with all my heart. Can't do that to them because mm -hmm. I've seen what a suicide does to a family. I'm like, no, the cycle stops here. Yep. I can't do it to these kids. I can't. So as quickly as I popped in, I chased it out with some resiliency. And what it was, was the relationships I had in my life. It was the yeah. people. Connections. It wasn't like, oh, Dennis, who's going to get your fancy car? F that. It was the people. Yeah. Relationships. And at this time, 2015, you had really in you know the, the span of <clears throat> your life, just recently started talking about mental health issues, your brothers. So from the mid-90s to 2010, you weren't talking about your two brothers passing away from suicide. What made you transition to wanting to talk about it more? Well, the funny thing is you said I wasn't talking about it. I couldn't talk about it. I tried to talk about them, and I cried a lot. I remember I was introduced to the first real speaking gig I had. They said, here's this guy who lost two brothers to suicide. And I'm sitting there, and they're introducing me. And I'm like, oh, man, that poor guy. And ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Gillen. I'm like, mother. <laughs> and I cried. I couldn't talk about it. Self-preservation. And I remember talking to a pastor about this, Sam. You know, I, I said I wasted all this time. I didn't talk about my brothers. Mm -hmm. I said I wasted all this time because now it's my passion. My misery has become my mission. But before I could talk, he goes, he goes, Dennis, that was your time in the desert. When the Israelites were running around the desert, mm -hmm. waiting for the, he's like, they weren't ready. God's like, you're not ready. You're not ready. You know, it should have been, you know, a short journey. Took him like three yeah. generations later. <laughs> okay, here you go. Um, it, it was your time in the desert. So anyone grieving out there and you think you're ready, just take care of yourself. And I, I had to take care of myself. And for me, it took a long time. Yeah. And there's no recipe. Some people, I'm, I always marvel. And you had a lot of guests on your show that something happened. And all of a sudden they went, I'm doing this thing. Mm -hmm. It took me a while. I did volunteer for the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And I could do that anonymous. And nobody knew. Yeah. A very private man, believe it or not. And then when I started speaking about my brothers, it was a slow you know, uh, process. You know, is this what I want to do? Is this what God wants me to do? Mm -hmm. And then feedback started coming from the talk, that positive loop I said, you know what? I guess this is what I'm going to do. What was the feeling when you did start talking about them? Was it a feeling of relief? Could you breathe easier? It's interesting. It, the grief jumps on my back every now and then during a presentation. And it was uh, here locally in South Carolina, Charleston Southern University, where I felt like I got this. But when I speak about suicide prevention and mental health, I talk about my brothers early. We get them out of the way. Mm -hmm. And that's for me. It's not for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> I love my audience. That's for Dennis. Yeah. I can't. If you watch my TEDx talk, mm -hmm. I save my brothers to the end. Mm -hmm. And I can watch that talk. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm dying on stage. Dang. Because you know it's coming. I know it's coming. And you'll listen and you'll hear my voice crack like it just did now. <clears throat> you'll hear my voice crack. I'm like, son of a gun, here it comes. Mm -hmm. I'll never do that again. <laughs> Always up front. This is what happened. It had some street credit. Like, this is what we got to do to prevent it. Yeah. As a mental health advocate, <clears throat> when you start talking with somebody or working with somebody, what are some of the initial things you talk about with them about mental health? Is it de depression, anxiety, what's going on? Like, how do we 
How do we get better at mental health? Yeah, and, and you, when I start, I try not to work with anyone individually because I already told you I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I never want to put myself in that role. Mm-hmm. Those people go to school, they're certified. I push people to therapy. That's to answer your question. We go, what do you start talking about? I talk about self care. Yeah. I said, what are you doing right now for you? And a lot of people that are suffering will often do a lot of cool things for other people, but they won't do much for themselves. Sure. I'm like, what are you doing for you? Yeah. Self care is not selfish. So let's take care of you. I'll go, do you have a therapist? Are you using? And substance use disorder is prevalent. And I don't judge. You know, hold on, Dennis. You told the story about you getting shit based for years. <laughs> Who are you to say? Uh, when you point a finger, you all that throw your point right back at you. For I sure. guess I ask it non-judgmentally. And if you fall, you trip, you stumble, you fall. You know, treat yourself like a child. It's okay. Better days ahead. So I I do stand on those two pillars. You know, are you are you sober and are you seeing somebody professionally? You we sk- we kind of skipped over this and didn't talk about it. But after. When did you start seeing a therapist? Right after Matt died. I had a employee assistance program. A lot of people at work will have what they call EAPs. Mm-hmm. And my EAP uh, allowed me to get free sessions because I'm cheap. <laughs> and uh, I had like eight free <laughs> sessions. It's terrible. You know, it's, I am cheap. I guess maybe for my parents, a second generation Irish, you know, they saved all their money and all that stuff, my communion money. Um then I also had times in my life, Sam, where I had lousy insurance and I paid cash money to go see my therapist. Yeah. So it, it means something to me. So it was through the introduction of my employee's program. I'm like, all right, let me try this. And I'm a guy and I looked over my shoulder to see who saw me going in. Now mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't give a rat's for a rent who's yeah. I know I need it. And if my friends tell me about their therapy appointments and they do, I, I, I say, way to go. I'm glad you're going. Yep. It's, it's, it's what has therapy done for you? It has helped me. One, it's weird. When when I was married uh, to Christine 1.0, because I got remarried, my, my new wife's Christine too. Really? All right. <laughs> so she's Christine 2.0. I fixed all the bugs, uh, upgrades. It's awesome. Update. <laughs> so I didn't want to burden my loved ones with my problems. Mm-hmm. So I said, let me bring in a neutral third party, a therapist. And they have a good set of eyes and they're skilled and they're professional. Your problems don't disappear, Sam. Like, like. I'm not going to go in there for an hour and come out and it's all, you know, Skittles and rainbows and, and unicorn, but they have a better way of looking at stuff like in priority, like, all right, Dennis, you're so worried about this problem down here. Mm-hmm. What about this big one that you're avoiding? And they just, I, I love that bigger view because we have the blinders on. Yeah. We don't see a lot of it. We don't see a lot of it. And they push and project. <laughs> and my favorite therapist, um, she was funny. I, said, I did one of those out of the darkness walks for suicide prevention. I spoke at it and, and I said, I'm never doing that again. And I remember she looked at me and she goes, you're doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, dang it. <laughs> Is, I, guess, I guess I am. The team and the people at Engineered Sleep are offering you 15% off if you use promo code LIVE15 to get a new mattress. And I cannot tell you enough how much trust I have in the team at Engineered Sleep and the product they will provide to you if you have any questions about your current mattress. If you're getting bad sleep and you think it might be your mattress, it's time to upgrade your mattress, and the team at Engineered Sleep is here to do that for you. Use promo code LIVE15. You'll get 10% off your order, but most importantly, you're going to be working with an amazing company. You're going to have an amazing product, and you're going to start 
sleeping better at night, and you'll start performing better on a daily basis. So go to engineeredsleep.com, use promo code LIVE15, get 15% off your order, and start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis. Do you look at your mission today from like talking as part of your therapy? It's absolutely therapeutic. And this strength and vulnerability so when I go up on stage and they introduce me and I'm, I'm vulnerable, mm -hmm. um, what happens afterwards, it's, it's wild. People want to, I've never had this happen to me. They line up to talk to me and I'm like, Dennis Gillen, normal guy. And they'll line up <laughs> at Georgia Southern. I was done at eight o'clock at night and I got to my car at 1030. Wow. Actually, I had to ask one of the kids to drive me to my car because it's dark now. <laughs> I don't know where I parked. <laughs> I'm lost. <laughs> this guy was like, yeah, get in. I'll take you to your car. Can you describe the feelings you get from when people react to you that way? It's like a people talk about being in the flow or the zone. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm in my godly zone, like I'm doing Doing, doing what I should be doing. Meaningful stuff. Meaningful stuff. Purpose-driven life stuff. Like, yeah. like um, you're just in that flow and it's draining. And it, all my friends are like, oh, I'm marketing. You got to do, you know, post interviews and all this stuff. I, I'm tapped out. Yeah. At the end of the talk, I'm tapped out. Oh, you got to put up a survey and get all this feedback. I'm like, I'm done. Yeah. I'm pouring my heart on stage. I have to relive the two worst effing days of my life on stage. And then when I'm done, people want to talk to me and I'll stick around as long as they want. I love that stuff. And often, and you find this by doing your podcast and you've been very upfront about your issues. And then you have someone sitting in this chair and you're like, holy mackerel, how are you still standing? Mm -hmm. That happens all the time after my talk. I, kids will come up to me and, and you know, these corporate gigs will come up to me and they'll tell me their story. I'm like, you should have been on stage. Yeah. Well, that's why I love people telling their stories, talking, because... It helps so many people who aren't talking yet and it might encourage them to talk or it might just encourage them to maybe be more connected, right? Or like work on things that they didn't know they need to work on or make them feel like they're not alone in what they're going through, which gets me kind of towards loneliness, which I know you've, you know, dove into a lot and you've done a lot of research on loneliness. Is loneliness one of the main causes of depression, suicide, like what, you know, what are some things in today's world that we can be on the lookout for? Well, loneliness, and I did my TEDx talk on that. I didn't want to do my normal talk for the TEDx talk mm -hmm. when I was uh, applying for that. So let me try something. Loneliness is like a symptom. Sometimes a depression, people withdraw or isolate. And the vice versa of that is loneliness can cause depression yeah. and, and other issues. So we're not wired as humans to be alone. Now I get alone time. You know, my wife uh, is in Florida right now visiting her son. And I got home last night from a road trip. I'm like, oh, cool. The house is quiet. Mm -hmm. Now, you're going to edit this out for my wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I was like, all right, I just came off this road trip. You know, I have the dog. I'm like, I just, Clemson was playing last night. There's some football. I'm like, let me just watch football sure. and just veg from that five-hour car trip. Yep. So, and it worked. So, I get that. But when she comes home today, I'm going to be ecstatic. I can't wait to see mm -hmm. her. So, you know, I get that. But. Prolonged loneliness, isolation, no no good, no bueno. It's not good for humans. We're just not wired that way. We're a very uh, social being. What do, you, what do you encourage people to do? That's, I can only use my life as an example. When I went through a divorce, 
and I moved to Greenville. I lived in Blythewood, South Carolina, and then I moved to Greenville. And guess what? All of a sudden, I was lonely. <laughs> <laughs> I moved up here because my two boys, but they're like 20s in their 20s. Like, they're not hanging out with dad every day. Yeah. Hey, kids, what do you want to do? Like, beat it, pop. You know? <laughs> so um, I found myself lonely. I actually went on, uh, I did date through some of the sites, and that wasn't that fun. But I did go through uh, Meetup. And Meetup is an app. It's a good, yeah, it's a good app. It's a great app. It yeah. sounds like a hookup app, but it's not. <laughs> it's like for, for hobbies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And through Meetup, I found this hiking club. I'm like, huh, that'll work. And what happened was I go on these mega hikes with this club on Saturday. And Sam, all I wanted to do was one, get out of the apartment. Mm-hmm. I moved from a big old house to a little crap apartment. And two, I wanted to get out of my head, out of my apartment and out of my head. Mm-hmm. Hiking fit the bill. And then I'd come home and I'd be exhausted from the hike. So I'd sleep like a champ, um, which when I, when I do get depressed, I don't sleep very well. I'm up when yeah. I should be awake and I'm awake when I should be up. It's awful. Everything's bass backwards. Mm-hmm. So that, I would tell people, find your tribe. And they're out there. Even, oh, I'm, I'm so different. No, there's 300 million of us. You're going to find yeah. somebody who's kind of sort of like you. If you like to write, you know, juvenile science fiction, there might be a club for that. Mm-hmm. And that meetup app was a, was a godsend. I met some great people on that hiking club. What it, <clears throat> do you normally work with survivors from someone that has committed suicide? What is your, like with your mission, who are you speaking to the most? There is a uh, survivors group that meets in a lot of churches. So if any of your listeners are out there, you go on, there's a website called the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So it's AF sp.org and they have survivor meetings i found that sometimes it was like picking a scab for me mm-hmm, like sure oh, it was rough yeah but you got in there to help other people too so one night we're in a survivor meeting and this mother and daughter showed up and they just lost their husband and dad like three weeks ago so the group just rallied all of a sudden we forgot all about our yeah our crap i'm like hey this is where you are so that was really cool aspect of it there's also this thing called voices um healing conversations I'm a volunteer, so if somebody loses a sibling in South Carolina because of my losses, mm-hmm. they will call me up and say, Dennis, do you mind calling this person? Wow. So I'll call them up. Wow. What about <clears throat> things anybody can do to maybe help prevent suicide? Are there signs? Are there things people can be on the lookout for? Like, What, what can we do to help the suicide rate go down? And it, believe it or not, in 2020, it did go down. The first year of the pandemic went from like 48,000 to roughly 46,000. So resilient. We have to build our resilience. Let's, mm-hmm. let's get away. Not get away. It's hard to get away from the, you know, the, the mental health aspect because we all have it. Uh, but let's try to work on positive at, traits that work for us and, and build our resilience. So now when something happens, like that divorce happened for me, mm-hmm. guess what? I did not complete suicide because yeah. I'm like, you know what? No. Yep. It got in there, but not today. Not today, Satan. Six feet back. <laughs> Get back. So build up your positive skill set through resilience. Um, you want to. You want the rate to go down. Have your head on a swivel. Look for risk factors. You know, any anyone in transition, Sam, I worry about. Okay. Transition could be uh, loss of a relationship. Uh, loss a job. You know, Got these, it. These are all things I've done. <laughs> I've had happen to me. So let's point any fingers. Um, you know, look at the kids, a first year program. It's a lot of colleges. They just moved in a, a new dorm. Yeah. You know, there you go. Anyone in transition, 
That's why I look at these guys in midlife. The worst offenders for suicide are, are guys mm -hmm. in midlife. They're transitional. The kids are out. I'm not needed as much. Maybe I've worked in insurance my whole life. Is this everything? So that 44 to 54 and 55 to 64, those numbers are awful uh, for completed suicides. But just have your head on a swivel, look for stuff. Do you think it's, how would somebody bring it up to somebody if they were concerned? Great question. And I think this is one of those aspects where you run to the bear. <laughs> you ever hear that expression? Yeah. They say, if a bear's coming yeah, you're at you. running away. You need to go through that, man. Yeah. If the bear's coming at you, you're supposed to lay down and, you know, pretend you're dead. I'm like, hold on. I'm going to rely on my acting skills, you know, not to get eaten. No, you run to the bear and they say, why? He won't expect it. So you run to the bear on this issue, Sam. So the, the question is, if you're looking at warning signs and they're, they're withdrawing, they're isolating, they're giving stuff away and you're starting to pick up a vibe, mm -hmm. go with your gut. And when you go with your gut, you say, listen, dude, you, you've had a lot happen to you. Let's yeah. say it's you and I. Someone in your position may be thinking of suicide. Are you thinking of suicide? Now, I said the word. That's a tough word to say in a question. Mm -hmm. And all the trainings I've done, and I'm, I'm certified to do a lot of these trainings, QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer, Safe Talk, Assist, Applied Suicide, Invention, Skills Training. I've added to my resume, but it all boils down to one thing for your <laughs> listeners. Can you say the S word? And sometimes you have to say it. Don't beat around the bush. Hey, did you ever feel like laying down and not waking up? People have said that, and it, it, it does help get to there. Mm -hmm. But eventually, you're going to have to get there and say, dude, are you suicidal? And you come out, practice it in the car before you go in and say it. Yeah, It's a hard question to ask and be ready for the response. If the response is yes, what, what do you say next? First of all, you thank them for sharing that. You think If you and I were doing this and we were role-playing this and you said, yes, dude, thank you. That was big mm -hmm. that you just shared that. I, I can't tell you how much I love you for saying that. It, it's boundless right now for admitting that. Uh, thank you. And then we go, so did you, have you ever thought about how? So here I'm going with this. I'm going to disarm the plan. He goes, well, I have a pistol in my drawer. Hey, why don't I just take the pistol tonight? Mm -hmm. You'll get it back. I mean... We, we we love to go target shooting. We'll, we'll we'll do that again. Yeah. Let me just take it for a while until this crisis is over. And then when you feel better, I'll bring it back. How's that sound? So I'm going to disarm the plan. Now, I had to do this one time on the phone with somebody. And I'm like, I'm ready for the argument. Like, you know, do you have a firearm? Yeah. Do you think is anyone can come over and get it? And I'm waiting for this guy to go, hey, Second Amendment rights, America. You know, like, <laughs> and the dude, the dude said, that's probably a good idea. Wow. So they want to live. Mm -hmm. And we're speaking to that part of the person. People think they want to die, but there's this huge part that wants to live. So when someone says, that's probably a good idea, guess what, Sam? They want to live. Yeah. <clears throat> I've learned this through people that I love. And it was telling to me because I had never thought about it this way. But what do you see is most understood about somebody wanting to commit suicide or does commit suicide? All right. We're going to, we're going to do a coaching moment. You and I, right? All now. right. We don't use the word commit anymore. Okay. The reason is it sounds like you committed a crime and I, and if you and I were, we're not on a podcast, I would do this privately. Hey dude, we don't do that anymore. You know, we say died by suicide. It's easier. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to get away from like a committed a felony, committed this. It's just yeah, yeah. take the onus off. The, and we're giving grace to that person. Sure. That person's hurting. So died by suicide. So say your question again and then I'll, I'll answer it. What do you think is most 
misunderstood by an individual that has died by suicide about what they were going through, their thoughts? I think we have to give that person, I'm not condoning suicide in any way, shape, or form, but I had to give my brothers grace. Mm -hmm. They were in so much pain. Think about this, that they thought that was the best way out. Yeah. Now, you and I know, because we could see, they have blinders on. We could see out here in the periphery. Um, we know that is not the best way out. Yeah. And think about all the problems. I want the audience to think about this too. Think about a major issue that you had when you were younger. Is it a major issue now? No. No. No, it's not. And time has an amazing way of healing. Mm -hmm. I wish my brothers were around so we could sit around and joke about some of the stuff. And it's funny because now I'm married uh, to a woman who has five kids. And I came from a, a family of five kids. And we go to their house and they're all there. And it's part of me that's really sad because they're fully, <clears throat> fully staffed. You yeah. know, they're all there. And I wonder what reunions would be like at my mom's house. And when yeah. my brothers were there and my sisters were there, what would it be like? I miss that. Mm -hmm. What was told to me and what really changed my thought on it too was <clears throat> people who maybe, you know, haven't had a close experience or fully understood it or, you know, talked to somebody about it is they think they took almost like the easy way out or they did you know, something selfishly or something like that. But what I learned is they think them leaving is going to make the world better. So they think they're almost a burden on their family, their community. And for me, that was really something that hit home for me because I had never looked at it that way. That's one of the words uh, that comes up a lot, burden. You mm -hmm. nailed it, Sam. Nailed it. Think they think everything would be better without them which is so not true. Mm -hmm. I'm a spiritual man. If you can't see the podcast, I have a cross on my <laughs> shirt I, from a ministry that a friend gave me a shirt. Uh, I wore t-shirts from ministries. <laughs> um, I do believe, if you believe in God, you, you have to believe in the devil. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't talk about that guy that much. <laughs> not, not, not growing up, not, my, not any faith tradition I've been in. Like, oh, we leave him over there. Sure. Um, but he's out there, and I think he lies to those people. They're alone. So if someone withdraws and they isolate, guess what? The devil's like, sweet, I got him. Mm -hmm. And the devil is a lion sack of... Can I curse on your... Oh, yeah. See, here's the deal. I'm, I don't drink or smoke, but I'm working on my mouth. <laughs> Everyone has a vice, right? <laughs> the devil's a lion sack of shit. He really is. And um, he tells these people, you know, he tells them bad lies. You know, you're a freak, you're alone. He also tells them good lies. You don't need other people. You, you got this. Mm -hmm. He lies, lies, lies. And I think you know, those poor folks are isolated and they, they start believing the lies. Like you just said, like the world would be better without me, which is total BS. The world, yeah. my world was much better with my brothers in it. Yeah. And I, I can only imagine what it would be like now to have nieces and nephews from them mm -hmm. and go to reunions and just be nuts. And it kind of... <clears throat> transitions to what I think is an amazing children's book that you've recently been able to write and it talks about compliments and the title of it is nice shoes and compliments simple compliments can go such a long way for individuals talk to me about your children's book why you wrote it how you wrote it what's the story behind it and what's the mission behind it Sure. The mission behind it is kindness. And it's, uh, it's the, the genesis of the book was interesting. I was speaking at uh, the University of Delaware for a fundraiser. It's called Friends for Friends. 
they lost a student to suicide at the school and they, this group got together they all knew him and they're going to mm-hmm. raise money and they're actually going to raise money for the counseling and psychological services department to hire another counselor because there's not enough of them so i get there i'm going to bring three kids on stage one of them is my co-author steven steven gets up on stage and tells his story about when he was younger and having a really bad day at school now steven was thinking suicidal thoughts but we don't address that in the children's book we go, he was sad, and he thought all his days would be like this. That's as far as we go. But in real life, Stephen was suicidal. As and a kid? I, as a kid. He's like junior high-ish, okay. you know, middle you know, not middle school, junior high, high school. He says like 13, 14. Mm-hmm. And he was walking out of school, and he had his sneakers on that he bought, but nobody noticed him all day. And one of the cool kids said, hey, Stephen, I like your shoes. And then he's waiting for this backhanded compliment, you know, like, you know, hey, do they come in men's? You know, yeah, so yeah. he's waiting for that the other shoe to drop literally and the guy goes no really i like your shoes and steven left the building with that thought mm-hmm. and he tells us on stage i'm like wow how a kind word changed his life yeah it's so it simple literally saved his life he walks out that door in a pissy mood he goes home and his parents weren't going to be home for a while we could have lost him mm-hmm. but that dude says nice shoes on the way out saves his life and that was in 2018 and during the pandemic i started thinking about it. like i'm I can't let that story go. So I got a hold of him in 2021. I said, Steve, we got to do something with that. I have a foundation. I said, dude, we'll pay to get it published. The Half a Sorrow Foundation paid to have it published, and we put it out there. And it's called Nice Shoes. A little compliment can go a long way. And it's so weird to log on to like Barnes & Noble. It's like <laughs> you're, you're, you're a kid. That was like the Mecca. And, you know, Amazon didn't even, but Barnes & Noble. And I, my, my, my title's listed on there. And it's on Amazon. It's on Walmart.com. It's just bizarro. But what's really cool about it is the message. Yeah. A little compliment can go a long way. And it saved Stevens. It's life. simple. Simple. But oh, it's very powerful. Kindness wins. And you can think now, like I can probably think back and recall like just little compliments like that on a bad day, like compliments or just like happy people. When you run into somebody, I was, we were down on a walk. It was like my wedding week and we were having a great day, but I remember we walked by this guy picking up trash and he was like cleaning out the, the trash cans and he was so nice to us. Just like asked how our day was going, very like vibrant and just joyful. And I just remember being like, man, like that guy. Everybody he talks to is like getting a little pickup for the day. And that's similar to just like a little compliment, you that's know? It. Leave the person better than when you found them. Like he just, that guy, <laughs> that energy level he has, here you are talking about it years later. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wow. What, um, what is your foundation? It's called the Half a Sorrow Foundation. And it's based on a Swedish proverb that a shared joy is a double joy. And we're really good at sharing our joys. <laughs> just go to my Instagram page. <laughs> Right? Check out all the stuff I got. Ah, blow it out your rear end. But the other side of that is your shared sorrow is half a sorrow. <clears throat> so when I decided to do a foundation, someone gave me some excellent advice. An old fraternity brother from college said, don't name it after your brothers. And I, I've since learned that's a best practice because my brother's names have a certain Q factor and then it fades after a while. Yeah. But half a sorrow resonates with people. If you share your sorrow, you cut it in half. Mm-hmm. And we have to get better at doing that. Yeah. And every time I speak about my brothers, I cut my sorrow in half. But here's the deal, Sam. I'm always going to have a remainder. A half of a half of a half. There'll always be something left. And that's okay. Yep. That means my brothers were significant to me. If I don't feel it anymore, I have to check for a pulse. Yeah. I'm done. I'm turning around the Grim Reaper's like, Dennis, it's time. (laughs) Okay. I'm cool. 
Is there a, if people haven't been able to tell, you've done some stand-up comedy in your day. I like to laugh. But I, but I but I find this with comedians. Is there is that an outlet for you? Absolutely. Uh, the, my talk is an outlet, you know, and my talk is somewhat funny at times. Mm-hmm. And people go, hold on. I didn't, you know, one woman came up to me after my talk. She goes, you owe me money for mascara. She goes, <laughs> I was crying and then I was laughing all like one sentence. And they don't expect that. Mm-hmm. You know, you go into a suicide prevention talk. It, it, my dream talk, and I've done this a couple of times. You walk in the room and there's a DJ playing upbeat music. And I've seen, we've done this at colleges and kids walk in, they go, is this the suicide prevention talk? Like, <laughs> yes, it is. Sit down. Put your seatbelt on. We're going for a ride. And the ride is we take them to the emotions all the way and we pull back a little mm-hmm. bit with humor. And humor, I have found, Sam, I'm not being flippant towards a disease, the state, or any people. Mm-hmm. Mostly it's aimed at me and I could take it. But it helps disarm the person because if you do a suicide prevention talk and it's mandatory, everybody walks in there and they sit down with their arms crossed. Yes, silent. And, and they're pissed that they have to be there mm-hmm. and they want this hour to be over with but they have to be there. Yeah. When I was down at Charleston Southern, it was mandatory. It was part of convocation. I remember the room held 220 and there was 300 kids in this room. And they looked sort of mad. Like, all right, what are we doing? It's mental health week. We have to sit there. And sure. They had to swipe out, you know, the, their ID to get credit. I'm like, all right, I don't care how you got here. You're, You're here. here. Showtime. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, we're going to hammer this message home that life is worth living. And we're going to do it in a way, believe it or not, that's, you know, it's terrible to think this was selfish. We're going to do it in a way that makes sense for me because mm-hmm. I have ADHD bad and I don't want to sit through an hour lecture some guy going, in 2019, we had 46,000 deaths. Sure. You know, like, oh my gosh, please, somebody grab the microphone from this guy. I can't do it. So I brought up students like Steven for nice shoes. I bring up, that's awesome. And the students get up there and tell the story. I did it at Furman a couple times for the, they have a CLP program. They have to get credit. These students would get up there and they'd, I remember the last time I did it up there, I, I grabbed the microphone. I said, as a professional speaker, you should never bring anyone on who's better than you. <laughs> and I did it three times tonight. <laughs> I did it three times. Every student was like, wow, wow, wow. It was Dang. unbelievable. What, um, what is a message? And you might, you know, in some of your speeches this way, but what do you try and leave the people that come to your speeches or your meetings, what's the message you're trying to leave them with? There's a big message of hope at the end. You know, hope that different is good. You may feel different. And I use the sunflower example I have in my presentation. And it's, I like them real tall, the sunflowers. They're supposed to be six feet and this rabbit ate this one and it only grew to about three feet, but it it blossomed with three flowers. I said, listen, different is good. Mm Mm-hmm. If we were all the same, Sam, if everybody was like Dennis Gill on this one, it would, it would be awful. <laughs> oh my gosh, I couldn't stand myself. It would be, <laughs> it'd be awful. It'd be terrible. It'd be boring. So there's a real upbeat message of hope at the end. And, uh, you know, it's okay to ask for help. And it's just a, it's a vulnerability love fest at the mm-hmm. end. It's just like, you know what? It's okay. And that's why I think at the end, the kids come up to me for hours afterwards. Like, all right, you did it. I did it. I was yeah. at a big convention for sorority, 600 women at a convention for sorority women. And it was funny because I couldn't talk to one while I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> so there's 600 of them, right? You know? And I, I sat down and the woman came up after me and they're going to do like their bylaws, like the really dry part of the meeting. Mm-hmm. And she goes, before we uh, do the bylaws, I just want to let everyone know that you guys don't know this, but I lost my sister to suicide. And I ran into her later afterwards. I said, what made you go to the stage and say that? She goes, Dennis, you made the room safe. 
I felt that if you can do it, I can do it. Yeah. I'm like, she goes, that's the first time I ever talked about it. I'm like, holy crap, that's the power of this being vulnerable. Yeah. Communication. Communication. And I want to thank you for coming on, talking with me today. I mean, you do it probably more than some people, but you talk about this a lot, but it's always got to be difficult for you. So I just want to thank you for coming on, talking with me, sharing your story. For the listeners, what is the message you want them to end with? I do want to, I do want them to remember my foundation and, and where we got the name. A shared joy is a double joy. Mm-hmm. And I love sharing joy. But remember, a shared sorrow is half a sorrow. And do me a favor. If you're going through something that's sorrowful, share it. Yeah. Let somebody know. Because a lot of times we keep it within. And people are supposed to be mind readers and they know what we're going through. Yeah. Tell them. Yeah. I'm not feeling so hot today. Here's why. Well, Dennis, thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for talking about the tough issues. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.